where the miracle of pregnancy meets the reality of your changing body, where taking care of our kids meets taking care of ourselves, and where the daily frustrations of feeding a family meet establishing lifelong healthy habits. This is The Messy Intersection. Welcome to The Messy Intersection. I'm your host, Diana Rice, and I'm a registered dietitian, a certified intuitive eating counselor, and a mom of two. Here on the show, we explore the messy place where your life and your needs are all mixed up with the ever-changing needs of your kids, all through a weight-inclusive anti-diet lens that aims to help you raise body-confident intuitive eaters and become one yourself. You can find me on Instagram at anti-diet-kids, and I hope you'll also check out my free Facebook group, Raising Anti-Diet-Kids, where we discuss these episodes and dive deep into the many challenging aspects of raising kids to view food and bodies in positive, constructive ways that we often weren't raised with ourselves. To inquire about working with me, whether for intuitive eating counseling for yourself or for help with feeding your child, visit my private practice website, tinyseednutrition.com. Before we dive in, a quick mention that the content on this show is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. The views I express are my personal opinions and do not represent the views of my clients or employers. Let's hear today's episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Messy Intersection. My guest today is Kathleen Meehan, who is a Los Angeles-based dietitian with a virtual private practice. She uses a weight-inclusive approach to help clients heal from disordered eating, manage health conditions, and rediscover the pleasure and satisfaction of food. Welcome, Kathleen. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited about this one um, because today we are talking about infant sleep training, which is not really a uh, topic that I even thought I would cover on this show, which is mostly about food and body image. But uh, you recently put up an Instagram post that was like drawing all these parallels between diet culture and infant sleep training. And I'm really excited to hear more of your thoughts on that. But before we dive in, can you just tell us about you know yourself and your family? Yes. So I live in LA, like you said, with my husband, and I only have one child. I have a six and a half month old right now, little boy. Okay. So you are in it. That is right around the age where sleep training becomes a kind of a big deal. It's like a, will you, won't you? Like, where do you fall on this issue? So I, I definitely want you to get into all the nuances of what your, I guess we could call it a theory here. Your Instagram post had that meme image of the guy drawing the lines in the, you know, the conspiracy theory to you. But before we like jump right on in and, you know, hit people over the head with this issue. I thought it was really interesting in your post that you clarified that you weren't criticizing anyone who uses sleep training. It's more about the industry and the pressure. And this is a kind of language that we use with, you know, those of us who are fighting against diet culture, but not dieters. So how does this apply in new parenthood and sleep training? Well, I, you know, I wanted to be really thoughtful in talking about this because I know that it's pretty polarizing and it has sort of become like you either do or you don't. And I kind of want to stay in the messy gray area. And, you know, much like with diet culture, where it is the individual sort of engaging in this oppressive system for whatever reason, you know, people, people sleep train for a reason. And I want to have a lot of compassion and understanding for that. And this isn't to say that any person who has sleep trained or is planning on sleep training is, is wrong. It's more so some observations. And to be honest, very personal opinions, you know, this is some of the stuff like when I've been up for the third time in the middle of the night, 
if not the fourth time, and I'm feeling really kind of like distraught over what do I do? And and this is kind of naming like the stuff that's coming up for me. And those- yeah, for sure. So before we get into your hot take, you're, you've got a six month old, like, <laughs> tell us where you are personally at with sleep training in your family. Yeah, so I have not sleep trained him, which is probably like <laughs> the number one caveat that I need to tell everyone. He's been a tough sleeper since day one, actually knew it was going to be hard. But I didn't really have the expectation that I could have a baby who would never allow me to put them down ever. He had to be held, you know, in the beginning for literally around the clock or he was beside himself. And in retrospect, there are some things that were probably impacting that he's has a dairy allergy. He's a reflux baby. He had oral ties and was really inefficient. And so he was hungry a lot of the time. There's a lot of There's a lot of confounding variables, but he's never been my excellent sleeper. He loves to sleep on someone to this very day. And we haven't sleep trained. We've tried, you know, I've tried some of the techniques that maybe we, I don't know if we want to talk about them, but I've, I've read a lot of the material and I've tried some of the things, but nothing has stuck for him so far. But, you know, people would also say like, but you didn't try, you didn't actually do it. (laughs) Right. Well, I've heard that before in terms of, you know, you didn't do, you know, the diet the way that we say diet, basically. Um, So my youngest kid is about to turn five. And my oldest kid is, oh, my God, is about to turn seven. So I am kind of far removed from this. But I do remember, especially with my first kid, kind of being in like, it's just coming at you from all directions. And, you know, one camp was saying, absolutely, sleep train, like it's four. The, the health of the parent as well. We happened to use a, a pretty well-known pediatric practice in New York City at the time called Tribeca Pediatrics, which like they've been published in the New York Times for their stance on sleep training, and they recommend it at two months, right? <laughs> and so like all my peers more or less used the same pediatrician. Like it was just a really big practice in the area. And a lot of us were like, I don't know about two months. And so I remember being like, no, like not my baby, not at two months. But then like, you know, it was almost like the pressure was coming from like a form of self-care. Same same as we might with with dieting, right? Like this is for your best interest, your health, you know, to get your baby sleeping through the night so that you can be well rested so that you can be a better caregiver. But then I also, you know, there was probably I'm sure a small subset of people who were firmly anti-sleep training and, you know, maybe waving around questionable science about, you know, how much it's going to damage the baby. And it's just like, what? So I remember putting it off for a long time. But for me, with my oldest child, I actually, I guess we could call it like a breaking point where I like truly was a zombie. (laughs) Like I was working full time in an office at the time, pumping and just total zombie. And her sleep at the time was such that she would only um, go back to sleep if I stuck my boob in her mouth. Right. And it wasn't really for an all out feeding. She would fall asleep a minute later. So it was more like the human pacifier deal. Um, And we'll get into like, you know, Comfort is still a big part of it. But for my oldest kid, sleep training, I don't necessarily want to say it worked, but she started sleeping through the night and I started getting more sleep for sure. And then I kind of regretted not starting earlier. And with my second kid, and they're only about two years apart, I was like, okay, we're doing this. We're going to start earlier, not necessarily at two months, but like five months or so, I think. And it was a whole other situation and it didn't quote unquote work. And I'm like, well, is it because my first was at eight months and this one's at five months? And, you know, 
in retrospect, they're different children. <laughs> but I just want to put that out there that I am a person who did, you know, quote unquote, use sleep training effectively for at least one kid who then, you know, as a toddler went on to, you know, she was no longer sleeping as a toddler. But um, I just wanted to put that out there because, you know, so you haven't used it. I used it for one kid, not really for another kid. We are all over the map with, with this and we're not waving around a, a particular solution for any parent who is trying to make this decision right now. But in terms of how it parallels diet culture, why don't you uh, dive into your, your soapbox argument? Well, Oh my gosh, there's so many bullet points. But I do want to just kind of echo what you're saying that I actually think it's a a pretty privileged take to take the stance of I'm not going to sleep train because I think, you know, given the fact that so many people have to go back to work, so many people are exhausted, you know, we we don't have um, as much support maybe as we would need <laughs> during, during this time. Like right I, now people are probably scrambling to find their formula. Right, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you know, it, it might be one thing to not sleep train if you could have a nap in the morning, but mm-hmm. that's not real life. And so I, I totally get why people do it. And I also, as I tell my husband and as I feel like after a hard night, sometimes it's like, I reserve the right to still do it. I still may do it. I just haven't done it Mm. yet. So, oh gosh. Okay. Mostly this critique is in the resources that people utilize to learn how to sleep train where, you know, there are products that you buy or courses that you buy or very large Instagram accounts that you follow that sort of portray themselves as having expertise and knowing like the way, you know, I have air quotes there, like the way to basically help your baby thrive. And I was gifted, I'm not going to name drop, but I was gifted, you know, a couple books related to different techniques and sleep training. And, you know, as I was reading them, I couldn't exactly figure out what was like, scratching at the surface for me a little bit. But it was sort of the idea that like, this is the only way to do things that was really echoing diet culture for me and making me feel a a certain amount of pressure, because I was feeling like I was having some resistance bubble up. And it was almost like, no, no, you know, that that's not a concern. That's not a worry. That's not a do it this way. If you want your baby to, you know, be healthy, be well rested, have a well developed brain, you know, all these things that are kind of scary to quote unquote, ignore if if you don't do it. So I think that was one of the primary things that was coming up for me in terms of diet culture. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm kind of working on this theory the longer I do this show and the kind of work that I do with helping parents is that nobody, I don't think, enters new parenthood thinking it's going to be a breeze or even that it's going to be all, you know, Instagram saturated photos of how lovely it is to have your children surrounding you. Like everybody understands this is going to be pretty hard, but where we are still, you know, running into um, things that really stress new parents out, especially mothers, is for an issue, whether it's how your kid eats, sleeps, you know, whatever their milestones are. There's courses we can buy. There's, you know, do it my method, and then it won't be so stressful anymore. And that's really appealing when you're in the thick of it. 
of this is really freaking stressful, especially if you don't have all the support that you likely need, whether that's time off or other caregivers um, or other resources. So we sort of grasp at these solutions, which are basically one size fits all. And then when it doesn't work for our family or when it doesn't provide the relief that we're seeking, we're the ones who did it wrong. Not that, you know, the one size fits all solution was perhaps not custom tailored to your family. Right. I was sort of thinking like, how are we promising results when there's so much variability between, you know, children and their temperament, even between your own two children, which I'm so glad you have more than one child because I know I'm over here like, you know, one baby la la land. But, you know, I think it just felt off to me that we were sort of saying like, this is going to work for everyone. And I was able to meet a couple, now they are friends, a couple people who had similar aged babies and just kind of seeing like they could put their baby down and the baby would fall asleep. My baby would never do that. You know, their infant was sleeping for many, many hours overnight. My baby never did that. And just kind of observing the differences between the the different babies within this mommy and me group, I was like, they this can't this one size fits all solution cannot possibly be the answer and it was very obvious that that is also what is sold for diet culture you know in my opinion and i do i was thinking too like you know diet culture is related to oppression sleep training is not oppressive so that i i kind of want to name like this is not an exact overlap but you know we could keep going there are more yeah <laughs> I remember when I used to go to those mommy and me groups, um, when my oldest was an infant, the the group leader who was like a much more, she probably had teenagers, you know, she was an experienced sage mama. And she would tell us, especially with sleep, start as you mean to continue. And I thought of that when you were noticing the difference between your baby and other babies of the same age, because if that had been me in that situation, I probably would have been thinking, I did something wrong from the start. Like in, in my case, I, I was using breastfeeding as a sleep crutch, which honestly worked beautifully for the first several months. I was getting a lot of sleep in the very early months. And it was as my kid, you know, uh, approached like six, seven, eight months that her sleep started to deteriorate. But we were already in the breastfeeding as sleep crutch deal. But if I had seen uh, another baby that, you know, you could just put down and would easily go to sleep, I would have been thinking, what did I do wrong from the get-go? What habit did I instill incorrectly from the get-go? Why didn't I start as I meant to continue? But now that I reflect on that that phrase, especially you know, with all the work that I do in um, helping families navigate the feeding dynamics in their home, different things work for different times of your, your kids' development, your schedule, the amount of support that you have. So I'm not sure that this start as you mean to continue deal is necessarily the way to go. I don't right. know. Does that come up for you? Oh my God. I like, I'm even just triggered hearing you say that. <laughs> Full disclosure. <laughs> I, I, I still feed to sleep and that's a huge no, no within the sleep training mm-hmm. community. I will say like, I have found a lot of support in other accounts that, that kind of talk about how normal it is to feed to sleep and that it can be a very effective way to get a baby to sleep. So, you know, part of this was born by kind of how isolating it was for me to kind of think like, what am I doing wrong? Because I'm just trying to, you know, we say colic isn't really a thing, it's a symptom, but I'm just trying to manage my colicky baby. 
And, you know, that would be nice if my baby would do what that baby does. But, you know, and it was just like, it was making me think like, what is this comparison stuff that is coming up? This is the stuff I work on with clients. Here it is showing up in this way. So yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts about feeding to sleep, but I also, you know, think it's important to say that this is a very Western perspective that we have to sleep train our babies and that we can't feed to sleep or we can't support to sleep. And that has been an interesting take for me as well to kind of think like, yeah, why, why is this wrong when this is how so many cultures navigate babies and sleep? Hmm. As if the Western take is perhaps not (laughs) the one that is in everyone's best interest. Yeah. Yeah. It just, we, you know, as the longer I do this, the more I realize we just have to hold more space for how different families, different kids, you know, need different kinds of support. And there just simply isn't a a one size fit all situation. But you mentioned in your Instagram post a bit about, you know, we don't necessarily call it emotional eating in infancy. But isn't that what we're trying to avoid when we're trying to avoid either feeding to sleep or comforting with breast or bottle when the child wakes up. And I am just kind of connecting some dots in my head of so many women out there with disordered eating who use emotional eating for themselves. And if there's one thing that I've seen in the kind of work that I do, it is how very much women who suffer from disordered eating don't want their kids to experience the same. And I think with a a lack of knowledge, we get into things like, well, if I don't keep sugar in the house, then, you know, they won't be obsessed with it like I was. That's not exactly how it works. And and similar to, you know, if I don't teach them to soothe with the breast or bottle, then we won't be headed down that path in toddlerhood and elementary school. And it's just, I mean, I don't blame people. It's the last thing they want for their kids is to go through the same suffering with food that they have. But as non-diet practitioners, I'm sure we both talked to our clients about how emotional eating is not necessarily like to be avoided like the plague. <laughs> it is a tool that we have. And when when it's the only tool that we have, then it could be masking something else. But I mean, the, the parent-child feeding dynamic from infancy onward involves emotion and comfort, right? <laughs> how do you see that playing into this whole topic? I think... Oh, gosh, this feels really juicy and complicated. Uh, I I agree with everything that you're saying. And I think, for me, what would come up is, well, first of all, I should say, I subscribe to feeding on demand, which also feels like a privilege, because you know, you have to be physically able or able to take a break and get a bottle or something like that to be able to feed on demand. But I, I kind of felt like, offering the opportunity to eat. I've seen in my own child, if they are not hungry, they really won't necessarily. And so I think there is this big concern around kind of like comfort nursing going on and on and on and on and on for, you know, an extended period of time, where my personal experience is, if the baby is seeking nourishment, they will eat if the baby is seeking comfort nursing, it's not a very long experience. It's kind of like a quick experience. And so I think part of the nuance that is here is also that this is arguably up for debate, because I I hear the sleep trainers say that, you know, you have to teach self-soothing. And the folks who are not advocates for sleep training will say self-soothing is 
a developmental skill that is sort of something that a baby grows into being able to access or, you know, is something that a baby is able to access with repeated comfort in a way. Like the more you can kind of model comforting a child, they will then be able to do that for themselves as they get older. And so again, like I'm, I'm a lay person in this world. I'm just absorbing all of this information. But I will say I have seen with my own baby, despite feeding to sleep, despite having these instances of comfort nursing, I have seen him wake up in the middle of the night and then kind of go back to sleep on his own. And I've thought to myself, like when he has longer stretches, I've thought, well, if he, you know, can't put himself back down to sleep without me sleep training him, what just happened there? Because to me, it kind of seems like he did kind of wake up and stir and then go back to sleep. So I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting one because um, I'm just thinking about the parallels with older kids and the kind of work that I do there in terms of helping kids get in touch with, you know, if they eat a lot of candy on Halloween, it might not feel very great, but they have that experience and then they can rely on that in the future in terms of self-regulating. At the same time, if, you know, if like one of my kids um, really loves cow's milk. I remember early in the pandemic, we were definitely having a lot more uh, warm cow's milk than we usually did because she was no longer going to daycare. What's going on here? Daddy's working from home. Like things were very, very different. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> if if milk gets his job done and like helps her feel like safe and, and more like normal, then we're doing a little bit more milk for a while, right? And so helping kids develop those coping skills throughout childhood, sometimes with food, sometimes not, probably more often not, is you know part of your role as raising a well-adjusted kid. And I can't really think of any other instances other than sleep training where we just like totally say that this kid is on their own, which makes me a little sad now that I think about it. I, you know, along those lines, like I think it's almost a little bit of hyperbole and I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus, but there's a couple big like sleep training accounts or philosophies where I think the idea is like, if you offer the breast or the bottle a comfort that that is like all that you do kind of. And I don't know that that's fair because I think while it may be a tool to your point, you also may pick up your child if they're crying. You may go outside, which we know is such an amazing technique. You know, you may bounce them a little bit or or hug them. It's not like they cry, you put a boob in their mouth, or you cry, they put a you put a bottle in their mouth. Like that, that feels like significant hyperbole to me than what may actually be happening. And you know, I don't want to shift gears away from this, but I'm kind of thinking now about how a lot of the sleep training regimens recommend a pretty strict schedule instead of feeding on demand. And I sort of feel similarly, like there's this idea that if you're feeding on demand, you're just giving them food every, you know, 15 minutes or something like that. And I actually feel like feeding on demand also ends up mimicking a similar schedule, but it's not as rigid as maybe like absolutely do not feed until noon, for example, which does remind me of diet culture because one thing that stuck out to me when I was reading about that, I was like, wait a second. I talked to my clients about if you're hungry before quote unquote lunchtime, you can eat before lunchtime. Mm -hmm. Why would we not, if we can accommodate that, which again, it's a privilege, why would we not? 
Yeah. And that is actually something that I talk a ton about to parents of older kids. And it is a very nuanced, fine line with older kids. I'm talking about at least age two and above. Of It is very helpful to have a structured meal schedule. But if somebody was a cranky pants at breakfast and didn't eat, even though we expected them to, like, we don't have to say no more food until 12 p.m. lunch, we can say, all right, buddy, I can tell you're having a hard day. Let's have lunch at 11 today. I'll join you. Let's have something you really like, right? That's being in tune with your kid. You know, the, the flip side is, you know, believing that if you don't wait until noon. You're you're conceding to them. You're you're being a short order cook or whatever it is. When really being responsive to your kid in that way, we have great research on sh- that shows that that's how kids feel secure and trust their caregivers and recognize that their needs are going to be met and they don't have to be looking out for themselves in terms of feeding. And I think that it's really great to you know do that from infancy onward. And to the degree that I do work with infants, all the best practices say feed on demand. So and not the <laughs> sleep training book. And well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what I'm curi- getting curious about is whoever these these big name sleep trainers are, and they're usually just like they're not necessarily pediatricians, right? They're just like influencers who got big for their sleep training. Yeah, I think deals, some of them right? are nurses. Okay. Well, uh, one thing I have noticed is that uh, healthcare providers, on the whole, are not somehow immune from diet culture. In fact, they are likely more entrenched in it than we are. So I'm just, you know, this is just a, a theory that's going to bounce around. I'm not going to be able to prove it, but if someone who is in the business of teaching sleep training has themselves come up in diet culture and is thinking that, you know, we really as, as humans should not be eating whenever we feel like it, that leads to the O word, then surely let's get little babies on a feeding schedule from the get go so that they learn not to snack or not to comfort with food. And it might not be like directly connecting the dots, but is it informing their recommendations of, well, surely this is just something that's good for humankind because we're all eating too much anyway. So, you know, obviously don't feed your your infant too much. I think so. I, I also think that shows up, you know, in terms of how some of the recommendations are around weight, where, you know, you're not supposed to start sleep training until a baby is a certain weight, because theoretically, once they are at that weight, they can go all night long without eating. And, you know, I, again, I, don't know that I agree with that. I, I see the parallel to diet culture where there's some suggestion that if you're in a larger body, you don't need to have an extra snack or you should ignore the hunger that you feel. And that just feels, um, again, this is why this is so emotional for me too, because it just feels so misaligned with my philosophy and perspective about how I feel like we should feed and nourish bodies. Yeah, 100%. And I'm only imagining parents of kids who infants who are larger in terms of the the growth curves or whatever it is, um, already worried that, you know, if they're adding a bottle at 3am, well, is that going to make them jump even more on the curves? And surely this is the parent's responsibility to get this under control, you know, from the get go. And, you know, we just don't know, I always I say this to the parents of my 
clients of, who are older children, like we straight up do not know what is going on in any child's stomach at any given time. You can cook a meal that you think your kid is going to devour and they take one bite and you're thinking, logically speaking, you should be hungry at this time, but their stomach is not your stomach. And, you know, there's, there's no rhyme or reason when it comes to what kids do or don't choose to eat. So to, to come in with sort of objective, like if the baby is this big, they need this much food can, you you know, really ignores the needs of the individual, which is really how we get into a lot of trouble with food and bodies is ignoring the needs of the individual. Right. I, I'm thinking about one forum I was reading, like, I, I'm not kidding, Diana, like I go down these rabbit holes when I'm awake in the middle of the night. But I was reading um, this one forum and someone was saying that, you know, they were kind of chastising another poster being like, your baby only ever needs X ounces at any given time. And Again, like that really upset me because that is not the recommendation and that is not, a, you know, teaching someone to kind of listen to their body or their cues. And, you know, I was thinking about growth spurts or, you know, all these different things where in which a baby may take a different amount of formula or milk at any given time. And, you know, this was a sleep forum. It was sort of suggesting like you're doing something wrong and it's impacting sleep. And it's so interesting how the food piece and the sleep is really connected. I was um, recently doing some research on infancy growth curves, and I will have to figure out exactly which study I'm recalling and put it in the show notes. But it was something to do with like, we expect that infant growth is, is really, but there's like a lot of data points. Like they start out at eight pounds, and then it's eight pound, one ounce, eight pound, two ounce. And like, you would be able to see over the course of a year, that it was a very smooth curve. And when we actually get a lot of data points, which we don't like most infants are weighed, you know, you might have a weight check every two, three months. But when they have looked at infants and weighed them like daily, it's not a practice I recommend for parents at all, but this was like a clinical study. They they saw that it would be like sort of a plateau and then a big jump and then a plateau and then a big jump. And over the course of a year, it looks like a smooth curve. But, you know, in those big jumps, that might be when we see like, oh my gosh, I was up every hour last night feeding him. Like it felt like I, you know, couldn't make enough. And like, it's, it's legitimately a growth spurt. And to say at any given day, this many ounces, this many feedings ignores like literally how humans grow. Right. And I, I think about with adults too, like we're trying to move away from this idea of calories in calories out because weight is so much more complex and, you know, it just, it just reiterates how important it is to kind of go off of cues rather than anything else, even though, of course, we're trying to make sense of everything and understand what's going on with our children. Well, when, what I'm thinking about is when I do an assessment on an older kid, I ask a lot of questions about what infancy was like for them. Uh, I want to know, you know, was, was the parent stressed out about breastfeeding, having trouble with that? You know, did they have any guilt or shame about using formula? Did the kid have the tongue tie or anything? Like, what was early feeding like? Because a lot of times when we see feeding problems in toddlerhood, it seems like there's no rhyme or reason, but sometimes we can connect it back to early trauma which is not necessarily 
even being left alone in a crib to soothe themselves to sleep, but like, you know, like wanting to breastfeed and having a tongue tie and it not, it's not working out. And like, no infant is like, I recall when I was two months old, I wanted to breastfeed right. and I could not, but like, and it, was but so like it, lives in the, <laughs> it lives in the body. And but what I'm thinking about now is that if a parent is trying to ascribe to a specific number of ounces per day, and it's not enough ounces for the baby, they're learning to be hungry from the get-go and like maybe when they do get mobile or um, start self-feeding, you know, when they start solids to basically always be looking out for number one in terms of how can I get all the calories that I need, which is not even a conscious decision necessarily, but just how tragic it is that parents would be taught that in their child's best interest to limit the amount of food. I mean, this is something I talk about with older kids all the time is that we do not limit kids amount of food and to even start that in infancy. And what does that teach the the infant's little body subconsciously about what they need to do to, to get their basic need of food? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, a real life example, when my baby was two months, he still had his oral ties. And if we had done the sleep training a la Tribeca, whatever, you know, he was so inefficient at removing milk from the breast that he was constantly hungry. And so, you know, he was, he was waking up all of the time. He was waking up every 45 minutes basically. And like, to me, something was clearly wrong, but if I had sort of ignored that intuition and done what I should do and what I was feeling pressured to do. You're right. I would have had a little baby with significant cortisol, very hungry. He probably would have not been on the growth curve that he was supposed to be on, even if he was, you know, following it. And I I am wondering how often that is the case because this the pressure to sleep train is so significant. Yeah, I'm thinking about it. So like I said, I haven't really been in the trenches of this right. in in a while. But what you just said about, you know, if you had tried to do it by the books versus using your intuition and being responsive to his needs, the situation could have been much worse than it was. And what that reminded me of is when I talk to parents about feeding their kids at all. I mean, it's it's a, it's a sticky situation that I'm in because I provide expertise on, you know, anti-diet parenting, feeding kids to have a healthy healthy relationship with food. But unlike the flip side of like either prescribing a diet for a kid or, you know, limits on sugar or whatever, I don't give people hard and fast rules of either, either let them have as much candy as they want or cap it off at this much or anything. I just say, well, what is your intuition telling you? (laughs) You know, because I don't know your kid and you do, right? And the exact same situation, I'll just, because I'm talking about candy, I'll just roll with that. Like, it might be important for one kid to have an experience of unlimited candy. And another kid, same day, you know, we might say, you know what, let's have that tomorrow. Now we're going to go have a peanut butter sandwich or or whatever it is. And it's not the wrong answer in either case. Um, And it's, really not my expertise that can provide that answer. It's the the parent's intuition of knowing their kid. And I mean, I've probably said this a million times, if, if you don't have that intuition, because you yourself don't have a strong intuitive eating voice, then, you know, where are we? Right. And I just know, especially in new motherhood, 
your body is changing. We haven't even gotten into the pressure to breastfeed and how that all plays into a parent's mental health. But, you know, I I don't blame people for grasping at, well, you know, if I could just look at this number of ounces and that be the solution, um, because when you're not supported in all of your needs as a new mom, then how are you supposed to make that decision on your own? Like, you know, your intuition is only like healthy and thriving when, when the rest of you is. Right. I mean, which yeah. of course you're looking for resources. Yeah. Like it, it, what yeah. is the right amount of food to feed my baby? And is my baby hungry? Or, you know, of course you're kind of looking for external validation. So again, this is why there is no judgment for any parent to kind of buy into any of this. And I think it, it works for a lot of families and it works really well for a lot of families. But if there is kind of like a, an, a, nagging feeling like something is off, I I also think we should give people the opportunity to sort of say like, you know, I don't have to do this if I don't Mm -hmm. want to. Yeah, I think that that's the most important part of the the something feeling off. Because like I was saying, with my first kid, when we did sleep train, I mean, honestly, I was, I was like, prepared for a night of just like, you know, sobbing (laughs) myself. (laughs) Um, And honestly, it was like 15 minutes of crying. And then she was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, bad. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and for me, for me in that, at that time, I was getting more well rested. She was sleeping through the night. I was able to do better at my job. And like, you know, I, I didn't have a nagging feeling of like, I I'm really doing something off here. And then with my second kid, um, you know, at first I blamed myself for, for not having sleep trained my oldest one earlier. And I'm like, I'm going to do it right this time. We're not feeding to sleep. We are going to sleep train earlier on. And it didn't work out. Like, I I think I probably tried sleep training uh, three different times at different stages of her first year and it never took. (laughs) Right. And I, I, fortunately, I think I was never willing to like really double down and like go a whole night without, you know, going in to, to get her basically, but I'm sure other people do. And, you know, I'll have to look this up. I remember, reading an article about a parent who who really did like for her own well-being and sanity like really did let her kid cry all night or something like that but it was written from the perspective of she simply couldn't function yeah on the level of sleep that she was getting or something like that and i think you know that's please that's where the mental health <laughs> piece of this is so yeah. important and again there's no judgment for engaging in it at all yeah. but but we probably wouldn't be in such a situation if we had more support for postpartum women more time off more support for breastfeeding more access to infant formula. <laughs> yeah, not being enough, um, you know, shortage would be nice. <laughs> is this a, I guess that what I'm getting at is similar to how <clears throat> diet culture is a very inefficient band-aid for fixing systemic health issues. <laughs> is sleep training culture an inefficient band-aid for actually supporting a, a new mom, a uh, new parent throughout the first year with, I don't know, night nurses or not having to go back to work at eight in the morning or, or whatever Yeah, it is there. I think so. You know, I think about like when I've had more support, whether it's family in town or my partner hasn't had to work or whatever, I think, you know, those have been easier days. Of course. And, you know, it it does feel like a Band-Aid. I think that having a tough sleeper from the beginning, my experience would have been very different if I had been prepared for the idea that all babies are different. 
that babies will have different needs, that it is not unusual to respond to, you know, your baby's needs that like, if drowsy, but awake isn't a thing for your baby, like you didn't do something wrong. You know, there is a difference between the baby that cries for seven to 10 minutes and the baby that escalates like you wouldn't believe during that time and then is inconsolable for the rest of the evening. Like there's a difference. And, you know, I think if we had kind of level set about what a hard time it is, and if there's more support available, it would be probably a different conversation. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And that's so interesting, the way you described that of basically being in tune with your baby's needs, because with feeding, the, the approach I use for child feeding is responsive feeding. And we're not talking about feeding here. Well, we are, we actually kind of are talking about feeding here. Um, cause feeding plays such a role in infant sleep and, and how just crazed people are about feeding and feeding schedules plays such a role in infant sleep, but exactly like, you know, your kid best, you know, you can be responsive to their needs. Perhaps what my oldest did need at eight months was to no longer have a boob pacifier show up. But what my second kid needed, I mean, she actually probably slept in our room for the first year, whereas my, my oldest slept, um, in her own room, probably starting at six months, right? Like just, and, and to this day, my my youngest is more of a cuddle bug and you know wants wants mama wants to be on mama's lap and my oldest is more independent so you know that's just a facet of their personalities that maybe was starting to show in infancy so we've been talking a lot about the baby and the baby's needs but it's you know the, the mom's needs are really important here too to wrap up <laughs> what's a sleep deprived new mom to do after listening to this episode i mean i think you mentioned you you were a layperson in this conversation I am a lay person in this conversation. So I would say probably the first thing is not to take your infant sleep advice from two days. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but, you know, what would, you know, if, if you were talking to uh, a new mom friend, what would you encourage her to do after listening to this conversation? I think first and foremost, I would start with a lot of self-compassion and just, you know, validating that this is really hard and it's really understandable to, be kind of at your wit's end, to be exhausted, to be searching for solutions. And it's okay to feel conflicted. You know, like I said, there are nights where I'm like, that's it, or sleep training. I, I think it's okay to kind of be in the gray and not know what you want to do. But I also really want to emphasize the compassion piece because I, I see so much blame, like you mentioned, and sort of shame, like you've done something wrong, or there's a reason why your baby can't just be like, you know, toss in their crib and say goodnight and see you tomorrow. And so I think, you know, just just kind of sitting with what is going to be best for you and your family. There's no shame in participating in sleep training. and There's no shame in not participating in sleep training. I don't think you're going to ruin your child either way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. It's all about knowing what you need for your family, but it's that much harder when, when the world's just not set up to support those needs. A lot of opinions makes it even harder to listen to your intuition as we always oh, say. So much. Yeah, so much. Well, Kathleen, I really appreciate you bringing this to my attention. Like I mentioned with older kids, this was not something that was on my mind before you put up your Instagram rant, which of course I will link to. But I think it's something important for uh, new parents to at least have some information about that, you know, sleep training does not have to be the be all and end all. And, you know, I will direct them towards your post for some more information. Where else can we find more about you? Just quickly, I will say, check out the comments in the post too, if you're interested, because there are a lot of people chiming in about their experiences kind of on 
both sides of the aisle, if you will. And it was really respectful. And I, I really, I did not expect the conversation that blossomed to occur. So if it resonates, read them. Where can you find me? My website is KathleenMeanRD.com. And I'm the RD nutritionist on Instagram. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this conversation today. Good luck with uh, that little baby of yours and whatever you end up doing uh, with his sleep. And uh, more than anything, I just hope that uh, you can take care of yourself in this new season. Thank you. you. We had a good night last night, so I'm feeling okay today. So thank you. Awesome. Awesome. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks again and take care. All right. Bye, Diana. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. You can continue the discussion in my free Facebook group, Raising Anti-Diet Kids, or on the Anti-Diet Kids Instagram page. You'll find links to both in today's show notes. And if you're enjoying the show, I would so appreciate you leaving a rating and review in your podcast player. It really helps new listeners find the show. And of course, I always love reading them. Until next time, embrace the mess.